Jesus, we indeed stand in awe of you, who suffered for us in that perfect but painful love. We ask today that as we read your word, as we hear um, about your trial, we ask that your spirit would uh, help us to appreciate you more and more, that we might love you more and more, and obey you more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to John chapter 18? John chapter 18. And we're looking at uh, verse 28 to chapter 19, verse 6. Uh, Actually, to verse 16, chapter 19, verse 16. Right? Uh, you've got an outline of where we're going in one of your handouts. It'll be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. Uh, and if you need pencils, then you can get one from the welcome desk. Uh, we're going to be going to... Oh, that's very good, thank you. Uh, we're going to be going to chapter 19, verse 16 this week. Uh, and then we're going to take a two-week break from the John series. Uh, and then pick it up, pick up the next bit on the crucifixion on Good Friday. Um, and then take it from there from on Easter Sunday and the weeks after that. All right, so the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at a topical series on prayer, um, uh, and then we'll come back to, to this, this, uh, this John. A Sunday school teacher once asked her pupils to draw a picture of any story in the Bible, and she walked around the class to see what they're drawing, and she came to little Achai's drawing, and she wondered what he was what he was drawing. And he said, this is very interesting. Uh, and he said, what, what, what are you drawing? And you know, this is this, 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 this aeroplane and it's got three people and a baby inside. Uh, two people at the back, one person at the front. And she said, and he said, she said to him, well, what, what, what's, what's this? Uh, and he said, well, let's see, baby Jesus, Joseph and Mary. It's the flight to Egypt. And the Sunday school teacher goes, oh, that's, that's very, very good. Um, Who's the one driving the plane? And they said, oh, that's Pontius Pilate. <laughs> well, this week we're looking at the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Uh, last week we saw how Jesus was arrested by a detachment of Roman soldiers and Jewish officials. He was taken to Annas, the unofficial high priest, for questioning uh, before he was sent to Caiaphas, the official one, his son-in-law, for the trial. John doesn't give us the details of the trial. We get that from other Gospels. But we know he was tried for blasphemy and found to be worthy of death. But since they couldn't legally pass the death sentence and Jesus was far too public a figure for them to get rid of him quietly, they needed Roman support because Palestine was under Roman rule. And so, verse 28 of John 18 they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now the Roman governor, the governor of Judea, was Pontius Pilate. Uh, he had been appointed by Emperor Tiberius in AD 26 and kept his post till AD 37. Uh, he was there, and by the time they came to his place, it was, verse 28, in the early hours of the morning. Right, Jesus had been up all night. You know, with his disciples, and then in the interrogation, and in the trial, and, and now the early morning, they've come to Pilate's place. Verse 28 continues, 
that they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. You see, a Jew would be considered ceremonially defiled, unclean, if they entered the house of a Gentile. It would religiously defile them. And it happened at that period... Now, it doesn't matter, like you can do that, but then you have to go through the whole cleaning process, right? Uh, to get rid of the defiler. That's going to take time, and they didn't have time to do that before they have to eat the Passover. Right? And so, there's provision for people who are defiled actually to eat it later. But these guys are public figures. They've got to be there, right? At all the feet, sitting at the front. Uh, and so they can't cut corners in their religious observance, and they certainly couldn't enter into Pilate's residence. Isn't it strange? Huh? We've been seeing about these people last week. Isn't it be strange how this group of people, same group of people, can be so caught up with the external observances of the law, with all the do's and don'ts, the pantang larang of, of what you can, you can't do to be to re- be religiously clean, and at the same time you're plotting and conniving and manipulating things to cause the death of an innocent man. It's flabbergasting how religious people can be so religious and simultaneously so immoral. Because religion can often be a cover-up for sin and immorality, can't it? And we think we can do all kinds of immoralities and then make up for it by being religious. And we get that not only in the religions of the world, but, but in the church as well. We've all seen movies about the mafia gangsters who go to church for confession, get forgiveness for the killings and cheating so they can go and do it again. Right? But closer to home it happens here as well, in all churches. People can lie and cheat and steal and sleep with a boyfriend and have an affair and it's all okay because we go to church and we observe Good Friday and Easter and we get baptized and we get confirmed we partake of the Lord's Supper and all it's okay now. Rubbish. Where external religion replaces true faith and relationship with God, corruption follows quickly. And God doesn't just want us to be religious, He wants us to be godly. Wants us to be like Christ, and and these hypocrites want to condemn the Son of God, and then eat the Passover meal, which was pointing towards Him. And the only thing they thought could stand in the way was ceremonial defilement, ceremonial defilement from coming into contact with a Gentile. Well, Roman governors were used to Jewish scruples and they generally tried to accommodate them. And so Pilate comes out to them. And so we'll soon have a comic situation of Jesus being inside, his accusers outside, and and Pilate shuffling in between. So Pilate, verse 29, we've got Pilate coming out to them and saying, What accusation do you bring against this man? Maybe this question came as a bit of a surprise to them because there must have been some kind of prior arrangement with, with, with Pilate. Uh, as we saw last week, the Roman guard helped them. They were primarily the ones who went to arrest Jesus, but they had a Roman guard to help them. They're probably expecting and hoping Pilate simply confirmed their judgment, announced the sentence, and go on. But now he's, he's trying to open proceedings again. He wants a proper charge. And so they're not happy. They give him the short answer. Verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Well, Pilate thinks, I'm the governor. I'm not your papa, just here to rubber stamp what you do. If you don't want to play ball with me, then I won't play ball with you. Let's see how far you get with your little project. So in verse 31 he says, 
Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And now the Jewish leaders protested. They knew they'd been snookered. The Jews said to him, no, no, no. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Which is quite true. Romans had taken it away from them. Sometimes they turned a blind eye to you know, mob stoning kind of execution. But this is not going to be one of those. Verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus was going to be executed the proper way by the government. Not stoned to death. He had predicted he would be handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified. And indeed he would be. He had said that he would be glorified when he would be lifted up. And indeed he would be on the cross. And these evil men in their conniving schemes would be the ones who would actually make sure that it would happen. And so Pilate goes back in to interrogate Jesus. The Jewish leaders must have told him earlier that Jesus was a pretender to the throne because his questioning runs along those lines. Verse 33. He said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? How Jesus would answer that question, well, that will be depend on what Pilate was meaning when he came to it. Was he asking out of wanting to know for his own understanding and curiosity? Did he want to know for himself? Or was he simply repeating the charge that the Sanhedrin, the council, the, the highest Jewish body had presented him with? Is he trying to find out? Now, verse 34. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate's answer shows that he does have no personal interest in the case. He said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. He's not, he's not there to try and find out the claims of Jesus for himself. His question of Jesus' kingship is not a, not a personal one. It's a Jewish matter. He doesn't really care. Am I a Jew? He's just doing his job. From his vantage point, well, here's simply someone who the Jewish leaders accuse of being a pretend Messiah. Another case, another problem. Not something that he wants to investigate. Yet, investigate he must, because Jesus has been handed over by the Jewish leadership, and they've accused him of being the king of the Jews. That is a treasonable offense. But even Pilate must have thought that this was unlikely. There must be something more behind the virulence of their hate. Jesus must have crossed them in some way for, for, for them to be so set on hanging him, get, getting him to be crucified. The Jewish leaders aren't usually so fiercely and fanatically loyal to Rome as to do this. Unless, of course, their own interests are at stake. And so Pilate asked Jesus, What have you done? What have you done? Now that Pilate has shown where he's coming from, Jesus goes back to answer his first question. Are you a king? And he explains that his kingship is not what the Jewish leaders have made it out to be. He says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus doesn't deny he's a king, but his kingdom's not a political kingdom. 
He's not an insurrectionist. He's not about to lead a rebellion to overthrow the Roman government. His kingdom is not of this world. It's not based on political power or military might or the force of revolution. It's simply not like the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom, yes. But it's so different from everything else that you call a kingdom that, that it overturns the category. And Jesus provides Pilate the evidence to back his claim that his kingdom is not of this world. Second half of verse 36. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And remember how last week Jesus was arrested and whole detachment of Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders and you suppose Pilate has already received a report from them? Of course he's been briefed. He would have known what happened. It's his job to know these things and we know too, because John told us. The Roman soldiers there in case of resistance and fighting, and the only resistance comes from Simon Peter, and Jesus quickly stops him anyway. And remember how Jesus submitted to them? He was always in control of the situation, purposely allowed himself to get arrested. What kind of king would do that? If Jesus was a revolutionary, if he was leading a rebellion, his servants would have put up resistance. They would have been fighting. But, but Jesus' kingdom is not like that. It does not use force and violence. It's not of this world. And I don't know how much of this Pilate actually understood. But all this talk about kingdom means Jesus is admitting in one sense or other he's a king. And so Pilate says in verse 37, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. It's, it's meant to be a yes, but in a kind of like reluctant kind of way. It's like, yes, I'm a king. Okay, that kind of thing. But Jesus goes on. He's not just a king. He's a king with a purpose. Verse 37 continues. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth, to reveal the truth, to tell the truth to a lost and broken world. To tell the truth about God, about sin, about our need to be saved and how to be saved, about the kingdom of God, about who is the true king. Jesus came to do it and he did. That is why he was born. That is why he was in trouble. And the people of this world did not want to hear the truth. And the Jewish leadership didn't want to hear the truth. And now Pilate, would he want to hear the truth? And Jesus said, as if to challenge Pilate himself, at the end of verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Would Pilate respond? Was he of the truth? Was he, uh, to use the metaphor from earlier in John, one of the sheep that God the Father had given to Jesus? Who would listen to Jesus' voice, would listen to the truth? Pilate says, verse 38, what is true? And after he had said this, he went back outside. Pilate is so cynical that he doesn't even know the truth when he meets him. Like 21st century postmoderns, he does not know if there is truth to be found. And he's got no time to listen to Jesus to explain the truth that he came into the world to bear witness to. 
He's heard enough to make up his mind whether or not Jesus is a criminal deserving of death. He's not really interested in the truth that Jesus reveals. He's not interested in knowing the Father through the Son. And he shrugs off the opportunity to hear the truth that Jesus reveals with a glib philosophical question that he doesn't even wait to hear the answer for. I wonder if there's anyone here like that. Might say you're searching for the truth, but you don't even give Jesus a chance. You don't really know what he stands for. You don't really understand his message, but you've already dismissed it. And you may have even given up on ever finding the truth. What is truth? It's all the same. All different religions are all different ways. What is truth? If that's you, can I urge you, think again. Jesus came into this world to testify to the truth. The least you can do is listen. Pilate may have been a skeptic, but he was no fool in the worldly sense. He could not... he, He wasn't interested in the truth about Jesus, but... He could see very clearly that Jesus was no insurrectionist. He wasn't about to follow him, but he wasn't about to execute him either. And so at the end of verse 38, he goes back outside to the Jews and tells them, I find no guilt in him. And that should have been it. The Jewish leaders hand him over, Pilate examines him, there's no case against him, no rightful basis for pressing charges, release the prisoner, end of story, everybody go home. But then Pilate did a foolish thing. Maybe he wanted to save face for the Jewish leaders, I don't know. And instead of insisting on releasing Jesus as an innocent man, he offered to release him as a clemency. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now at this point, if the Jewish leaders played ball, it would have been an okay situation, right? Jesus go free, so he's happy. Pilate doesn't have to condemn an innocent man, so he's happy. And at least the Jewish leaders don't suffer the indignity of losing face by looking like they've been overruled by the Roman governor. So they should be happy. A win-win-win situation. The problem is that by offering them that option, he's implying that Jesus is guilty. It's only a guilty man who gets clemency, not an innocent one. He's smart, but he lacks integrity, doesn't he? Will the Jews play ball with Pilate? Verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. How ironic. Barabbas really had been a criminal. Genesis was quite innocent. And Pilate is under increasing pressure to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus, to punish the innocent one and to let the guilty one go free. So what will Pilate do? Will he be firm and stick to what is right? 
Or will he be swayed by the crowds and execute Jesus? Well, Pilate decides to take the middle route. He doesn't want to execute an innocent man, but he does want to keep the Jewish leaders happy, so he decides to go along the road of appeasement. Let's just torture Jesus instead. Hurt him, humiliate him, so everyone knows he couldn't possibly be the true king. Maybe they'll be happy with that and they'll all go home. Doesn't matter that he didn't do anything to deserve that either. It's political compromise. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Notice the irony that comes out again. And because while the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world, he, he really is the king. And they are there mocking his kingship. They dress him in a purple robe like a mock royal cloak. They give him a crown of thorns, a mock royal crown, which sticks into his head and causes it to bleed. And, and when we think of thorns, we remember Genesis 3, which is part of the curse that God put on creation because of the sin of humanity. And this is the king who bears the curse on his own head. And so while the soldiers cry, Hail to the king and strike him on the face, we cry, Hail to our king who bore the curse for us and fall at his feet in worship. And Pilate goes back out to the Jews, 19 verse 4. He says to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Look, the man. And what a man he was. Battered, bloodied, looking rather pathetic. There's no threat to anyone in this state, Roman or Jewish. Pilate's hoping the Jews will be satisfied now. No basis for a charge, but still had him beaten up and tortured and humiliated to make their efforts worthwhile. And after this, surely Jesus would be broken and crushed on the inside and he wouldn't dare to antagonize the Jewish leadership again. So maybe now they'll be happy and go home. How did the Jews respond? Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Now Pilate by this time is getting annoyed. All his attempts at compromise are failing. And so he says to them, Take him, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Well, you don't agree with my findings? try to help you, you go and crucify him yourself. Lad. Of course he knows they can't. He's being sarcastic. And also he's very clear that he can't do it either. There's no basis for a charge. But the Jewish leaders are equally firm. Verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. 
Up to now, the Jews have been playing up the political aspect of their accusation against Jesus because they figured it would carry more weight with a Roman governor. Now they show the other card, the Jewish card, the Jewish excuse to put Jesus to death. Because Jesus had on a number of occasions claimed to be the Son of God. Not just the Son of God in the kingly sense, but to be God himself, revealed as the Son. And if that were not true, that would be blasphemy. And since the Jewish leaders had rejected the truth that Jesus bore witness to, that's exactly what they considered it was. And that's what they had convicted Jesus of in their own trial. And blasphemy, according to Leviticus 24:16, is a crime worthy of death. And so they were pressing for the death sentence, and they were going to keep on pressing for the death sentence until it came, even though that wasn't a death sentence for the Romans. But verse 8 tells us, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Maybe he was more afraid because he realized now how difficult this case is going to be to resolve. It's not just a political case of some alleged criminal being caught and handed over. It's a religious case involving fanatics who believe their God had been blasphemed. That's a good reason to be afraid, isn't it? But Pilate's next actions make it more likely that actually he was afraid of Jesus. Romans were well known to be superstitious. And they had these stories about people called divine men. Men who had special powers and supernatural origins. And For Pilate, a claim to be the Son of God wouldn't have meant blasphemy. It would have meant Jesus' claim to be one of these divine men. And so he wants to find out about Jesus' origins. And he says to him in verse 9, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus would not reveal himself to someone who is not genuinely wanting to come to the truth. And Pilate had already shown that he was not really interested in knowing the truth about Jesus. And he is certainly not going to allow himself to be put into Pilate's superstitious categories. And this gets Pilate annoyed with him now. Verse 10. Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? But Jesus is not cowed by Pilate. He answers him, verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now, at first sight, it looks like Jesus is saying that Pilate only has authority because God gave it to him. His authority as a governor is derived one, not just from Caesar in Rome, but, but from God on high. And that's true. We know that from other places in the Bible. But we don't think this is what Jesus is saying here because in the Greek construction, the word, the word it couldn't actually refer to the power. Um, if you're interested in languages, you want to know why. It's because the word power is feminine and given in, and, and, and given in the unless it had been given is neuter. Right? Um, whatever was given from above is, is not just Pilate's power, but, but the whole complex of events that ended up with, with Jesus and Pilate facing each other. And Pilate being in this situation over Jesus. And so through all the events that lead up to this point, even through all the evil work of the Jewish leadership, God is at work and have brought about this encounter. But at the same time, even though God was at work to bring about this encounter, 
those who handed Jesus over to Pilate, they are still responsible for their actions. In fact, all the players are responsible for their actions. And in doing what they are doing, they are sinning in a dreadful way. And Jesus says at the end of that, he says, Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now notice what this means by implication for Pilate. If the greatest sin is the one being committed by Caiaphas and gang, then there is a lesser sin, which Pilate is committing, which is still a sin. See, Jesus is the one being judged, but he is passing judgment on his accusers and his judge. He lets them know that what they are, well, he lets Pilate know that what they are doing is wrong even though the Jewish leaders have committed even greater crime. So who's on trial, really? Is it the trial of Jesus? Or is the trial of Pilate? Friends, we know from reading John 5, the day will come when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And even while he's being tried, he's pronouncing judgment on his accusers and judge. Both are sinful, but the Jewish leaders have the greater sin, and that's the last word that Jesus says to Pilate in this narrative. Now, as bad as Pilate is, he still has a conscience. And he knows that torturing an innocent man is wrong, and he knows the right thing to do is let Jesus go. And so in verse 12, he sought to release him. And so those who wanted to get rid of Jesus had to exert even more pressure to get their way. Second half of verse 12. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. See, this is the trump card. This is the ace they're holding on the back. You threaten the man with his boss. Right? Tiberius Caesar was well known to entertain suspicions against his subordinates and was swift to punish. In fact, Jewish leaders had complained to Caesar about Pilate before. There's every reason to suggest they might do it again. And Pilate would have to answer to him as to why he let this man go. When the highest Jewish court in the land has handed him over and accused him of being a rebel against Caesar... Now he is stuck between a rock and a hard place. What should he do? He knows this guy is innocent and a bit scary. But Caesar could be ruthless. If the Jews complain to him, he could be in deep trouble. He might be sacked or worse, executed for not dealing with someone who was against Caesar. And it wouldn't have been unlikely. There was a leading Roman called Elias Sejanus. Someone else might tell me how to pronounce that. There's the guy there. Who some people think was one of Pilate's mentors who fell from power about this time in history and Tiberius Caesar had him executed and many of his supporters. Either before or just after this trial. Tiberius Caesar was the kind of guy who would do this. And Pilate has a choice. As he said to Jesus, he's got the power to crucify him or to release him. Will he do what is right or should he cover his back just in case? What would you do? 
Pilate decides to cover his back. And so although he had earlier said that Jesus has no case to answer, he brings him to the official judgment seat for the official trial. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. It was outside area where the Roman governor had a raised marble platform on which his judge's chair was placed. And Jesus, the one to whom the Father had entrusted the judgment, the one to whom everyone must one day stand at his judgment seat, stood at a judgment seat himself and faced his judge, one Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. And Jesus would get no justice. By now it's round about 6 a.m., assuming verse 14, and John is using the Roman system for time. Pilate realizes that if his back is going to be covered, well, actually, if his back is going to be covered because he's going to give in to them and crucify Jesus, then he can now afford to be nasty to them who are giving him so much trouble, can't he? Right? Because they've played their card and they've got nothing else that they can use against him. So instead of giving a verdict, Pilate makes an acclamation. Second half of verse 14, he said to the Jews, Behold your king! He's not only mocking Jesus like the soldiers had before, he's mocking them. It's as if he's saying to the Jews, you pathetic people who have put me in this terrible fix, here is this prisoner bleeding, weak and helpless, and that's the best you lot can do for a king. You are laughable before the great Roman Empire whom I, re I represent today. Here is your king. And Pilate spoke more truly than he knew. For Jesus was indeed the king of the Jews. But those who do not belong to him will never like to hear of his kingship. And the crowd of the day that Pilate mockingly called him king was insulted and angry with the notion. They cry out, verse 15, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And now Pilate's having fun with them. He feigns surprise. He pretends to be shocked at the thought. Shall I crucify your king? Sarcastic as ever. Notice how Pilate has taken things back to the original charge. The only charge he can possibly execute him on. The charge of being an alternative king. And the answer of the chief priest must have been one of the most shocking statements in all the history of Israel. Verse 15. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Politically correct? Yes. Pragmatically designed to put Pilate under maximum pressure? Brilliant. But for the chief priests of God's people to say, we have no king but Caesar, that's, that's unthinkable. The Old Testament... It says over and over again that the ultimate king of Israel is God himself. That is the essence of the covenant. We have no king but Caesar. And they're 
effectively and decisively rejecting God's rule for the rule of Caesar. And every day, Jews have been waiting for the Messiah, the son of David, the true king who would come and bring in the kingdom. And the chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. And in saying those words, the Jewish leadership is effectively closing the door. Not only on Jesus as Messiah, but on any hope of a Messiah. God's promises are ruled out. The, nat- the national religious leadership in seeking the death of Jesus have betrayed the covenant, showed themselves to be out of step with God. And the ironic thing is they did it in the very presence of their Messiah King. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate had wanted to release Jesus but he'd already decided he wouldn't do so at personal risk. So he knew what he had to do. He finally in verse 16 he delivered them over he delivered him over to them to be crucified. He wanted to release him but not (laughs) going to cover himself. Now there are many lessons we can learn from this passage some of which we've looked at as we went along. The most obvious one is first of all the negative example of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate in the course of a day's work was faced with a choice. Would he do what was popular? Would he do what was right? Would he be just? Or would he cover his back? And we know the choice that Pontius Pilate made that day. It might have been just another day, just another example of how he operated. But it was a day etched into history, and more importantly, into eternity. For one day the tables will be turned and Pontius Pilate will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And friends, when we go back to work tomorrow, how are we going to behave? Are we going to do what is popular or are we going to do what is right? Will we be just or will we just cover our backs? Do we love our job more or do we love justice more? God loves justice more. And if we love Jesus more than we love our career, we must choose justice. Don't be like Pilate. And then look at the leaders of Israel, uh, uh, the, the, the Jews. Manipulative, conniving, murderous, and yet so scrupulous for the law that they don't even go into Pilate's palace so they're not defiled. Religious, but not of the truth. Having an outward piety with strict rules. and Oh, they've got religious standing there. I mean, it's two high priests, no less, but they do not belong to God. They do not submit to his kingship. Their hearts have been hardened so hard that they end up publicly rejecting the covenant. Friends, don't ever be confused. Being religious does not mean being saved. Being religious people doesn't mean being one of God's people. We can be religious, even fanatical in any religion, even Christianity, and still not be saved. We become one of God's people when we submit to Jesus, his King as our king. 
when we rely on his death and his death alone to take away our sins. And we show we are God's people as we live for him. Not by following ceremonial rules or by gaining religious recognition by advancing in church politics, but by living lives of justice and humility and love. Don't be like those Jewish leaders. And then look at Jesus. Here we've seen Jesus treated unjustly. It's it's pretty awful, isn't it? To know that you're not being treated fairly and you have no recourse. Something terribly frustrating. And many of you know what it's like. From work situations, from family situations, from school, from college. Jesus knows what it's like. He has suffered with us. He knows what it's like to be treated unfairly, to be tortured, to be made to look ridiculous. He's a victim of injustice. And so he is able to sympathize with us when we are treated unjustly. And even more than that, he will bring in justice for the nations, as the Old Testament said he would. When each person stands before his judgment seat on that last day, and justice will be done and be seen to be done. Jesus knows what injustice is like and he will judge the world. But there is another aspect looking at Jesus as well. I want you to think about this carefully with me. Remember how it said it was God's plan that Jesus should die the way he did. How he had been prophesied. That his murder should be judicial. That he should be sentenced and judged and handed over to be crucified. And we know that all this happened so, so Jesus could take our place under the wrath of God, take our punishment for us as our, as our representative and our substitute on the cross, that he could suffer for us. And I want us to realize today that how he gets to the cross is important in what he does there. Jesus was judged as we ought to be. And notice what the charges were against him. As far as the Jews were concerned, blasphemy making himself God. As far as the Roman court is concerned, treason, making himself king. Jesus was judged for blasphemy and treason. And friends, the judgment, the charges that we face at the judgment seat of God are exactly those same charges. For blasphemy and treason lie at the very heart of human sin. God is the rightful king of our lives and of the world. As a human race, we have rejected his kingship. We have rebelled and we show that symptoms of rebellion every time we do wrong. We reject God as our rightful king. That is treason. And in rejecting God, we have tried to take his place. Remember the temptation he did? What is that? Eat this fruit and you will be like God. And each one of us tries to make ourselves God. God of our own lives and sometimes even God of others. And that is blasphemy. Usurping the rightful place of God and taking it for ourselves. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, when they committed blasphemy and treason, remember what God said to them? What have you done? The very same words that Pilate said to Jesus. Jesus was condemned for making himself God. Blasphemy. And for being a king, treason. Of course, he's not guilty because 
He is God and he is the rightful king. He was found guilty though and punished for those crimes. But we are guilty of them. We have blasphemed and committed treason against the Most High God. It should have been us on trial. But Jesus was tried and punished for us. When theologians say that Jesus' death was penal substitutionary, substitution means taking our place. And he died in judicial punishment. It was penal under God's punishment and judgment. And as Jesus faced the judgment seat of Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and particularly in this passage, Pilate the governor, it was a pale reflection, a pointer to the real judgment that he would be subjected to on the cross. Where he would face on our behalf the ultimate judgment before God on our charges. The innocent one taking our blasphemy and treason for us on our behalf. So that we, the guilty ones, like Barabbas, could go free. He died for us. Finally, I want us to look back at Pilate again. For last week, the big contrast was between Peter and Jesus. Remember how John kept on switching between the two characters? Oh, this week, the contrast is between Pilate and Jesus. Last week was a warning for followers of Jesus, people like Peter who wanted to be his disciples. This week is a warning for those who are not. Pilate had to judge Jesus to work him out. He had no choice. He had to do something either way. And maybe today you are here and you're not a Christian yet. You need to make a judgment about Jesus. Like Pilate, you've, you've got to do it. You can't just say, go away. If you ignore Jesus, you're automatically making a judgment against him, aren't you? You're choosing to live as if he's not the true king. And if he really is God's king, then you are committing treason. So like Pilate, you have to make a decision. But will you make the right decision? Pilate wanted to do his job, but he dismissed the opportunity to hear the truth from the one who is the truth himself. He wanted convenience more than truth. He wanted his job more than just. He wanted to protect his own life more than the right thing. He feared Jesus, but he feared Tiberius more. And as he tried to pass judgment on Jesus, Jesus was passing judgment on him. And it's the same with you. If you are of the truth, then you will listen to Jesus. And if, like Pilate, you are not, then you won't. And your judgment on Jesus is his judgment on you. It was probably three years later when Pilate lost his job anyway. He mishandled a suspected uprising in Samaria by massacring those involved and he was sent back to Rome to answer to the emperor. But even more importantly, Pilate eventually died anyway. And as far as we know, he died without ever coming to the truth. And one day, Pilate will be raised. And he will stand before the judgment seat of the one who stood before him on his judgment seat. And he will be judged with justice. 
bearing in his own head the eternal punishment of blasphemy and treason against Almighty God. Friends, don't walk in the way of Pilate. Listen to Jesus. Listen to truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us, that reveals the Lord Jesus to us, and also reveals the sinfulness of our own hearts to us. Because we know that in many ways we are so easily become like Pilate. Have us be people who are people who love justice and truth more than we love convenience and our own well-being. Have us to be people who listen to Jesus. We don't just dismiss him but whose hearts are open to the truth that you have revealed to us in him. And help us to be people who are ever grateful that he has taken our place and taken our judgment and our punishment for the treason and blasphemy that we have committed against you. Change us, we pray. Continue to work in our hearts, we pray. That we might become more and more like this Jesus who lived and died in your will. And we ask this for his sake. Amen.